Before we begin, we wanted to mention that this episode contains conversations about suicide and sexual assault. Please take care when listening. Welcome, my marvelous mutts. I hope the pack is ready and willing to listen to this fantastic podcast. My name is Rob Asercha. I'm Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. And get ready for this one. It is kind of like an intense episode this week, especially with the political climate. Unfortunately, it's probably going to come out like a week after a lot of the shit goes down in Congress. And also, a little tidbit, I am sorry for the reverb. I just moved into a new apartment and my setup is not exactly there yet. Hopefully, when the follow-up comes out, it's going to be fantastic and smooth and not all crazy. How are you guys doing this week? Good. I was going to say, I think you are officially a podcaster now because you have your blanket tent around you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's going to go on the Instagram. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're going to do a video on like podcasting nopes. Uh <laughs> Yeah. So aside from the movies you watched this week, I've actually seen uh, quite a few kind of cool movies that uh, cool. I depend if you guys, I wonder if you guys agree with. I saw The Batman, which I know David hated. Terrible. And, I uh, also, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I liked it, um, but I do understand that it's stupid. Uh, and then I saw Northman, which I really liked. Loved that movie. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. film. Yeah. Robert <laughs> Eggers is like becoming one of my favorite uh, contemporary directors. And I also saw The Gentleman, Guy Ritchie's movie. Uh, you guys seen oh. that? Oh. Oh. I haven't. I don't really like Guy Ritchie. Yeah, I'm iffy on him. It's like all the other Guy Ritchie movies. But if you like them, it's Sounds good. right. Yeah. Sounds like oh. I won't like it. <laughs> and then I saw, this is an interesting one, uh, The Pentaveret, which is um, Michael Myers' new show on Netflix where he plays about eight characters. Uh, oh, Wait. Like Mike, like Austin Powers. Yeah, like Mike? Austin Powers. Yeah, it is. He's acting again. Yeah, Where yeah. Did he's, he disappeared too. He was in Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh God, yeah. he was. He was, and uh, we <laughs> always forget. Like he was doing Shrek movies forever and making just insane amounts of money. Probably. Oh yeah, that's true. Shrek is love. Shrek, Shrek is, is life. life. Shrek is love. Yeah. Oh, gross. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, he plays like I think eight main characters in the show. I watched uh, because I'm I'm preparing to watch Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness tonight. Uh, when we're recording this, that is the new Marvel movie. When this comes out, uh, it'll be prepping up for Thor. But right now, it's Doctor Strange. So uh, in prep yesterday, I rewatched the original Doctor Strange, which is a director who we'll be talking about today, Scott Derrickson, uh, yeah. as well as his What If episode, which is actually really really good his episode of what if is amazing and super dark and fucked up uh huh. and the day before that i uh prepped by working with benedict cumberbatch and lizzie olsen oh what? yes so that was neat oh wait that's did you work good. on snl were yeah. they on snl oh. <laughs> oh that's awesome man i hear snl is a crazy job oh it is but it's just one day and everyone's really nice yeah <laughs> I was just talking about SNL uh, with a couple friends, and we were talking about how they have they have the best cocaine, 
And we were questioning if they do cocaine anymore because they're, you know, notoriously doing cocaine for 50 years. No one's offered it to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think they offer it to the script supervisors. Um, yeah, probably not. <laughs> All your notes would come back like, oh. <laughs> like the, the line's here, the line's there, not there. <laughs> David P. Jacobs, yeah. who is like the best script supervisor I've ever worked with and like so uh-huh. meticulous on cocaine, would just be something like I don't even know what directors would even do. I think it'd be too much for them to handle. <laughs> too much detail, David. <laughs> you probably could have matched those like 80s directors. I worked with a director who was all coked up and it was a fucking nightmare. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. just reading about. Um, Oh, you know what? I just read Alan Cummings' second memoir, and he was talking about working with um, – oh, God, who was the guy who actually did Bohemian Rhapsody? And then he oh, directed Brian X-Men. Oh, that Did he do X-Men? Yes. Yeah. And he was talking about his drug problems on set and like how insane they were that he would be hanging from wires on set ready to roll camera, and Brian Singer would be like not on set in his trailer doing drugs. And he would just be sitting there in wires. That guy is like the the worst human being on the planet. I mean, I haven't, I haven't met him just, you know, from the stories. He's hmm. like Harvey Weinstein with kids. Mm-hmm. Awful. Yeah, that's it's, terrible. Yeah. Speaking of terrible people, I also watched <laughs> part of the John Wayne Gacy uh, special on Netflix. That oh. new, yeah, that's, that guy's disgusting. Uh, yeah. I haven't finished it yet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'll follow it up with the Ted Bundy one and just, you know, round out my serial killer tapes. I did just get a pillow of John Wayne Gacy. I don't, I, you know what? It was a joke and now I'm like, oh God, we have a serial killer on a pillow. But on one side, it's That's John disgusting. Wayne Gacy. <laughs> and on the other side, it's John C. Riley. I agree. I, <laughs> what? That's... See, it's funny. But then I also have a serial killer on a pillow in my living room. Oh man, it's John C. Riley and then John Wayne Gacy on the other I mean, day. it's kind of surprising you didn't already. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what that's, that's <laughs> fucking wild. Uh, yeah, no one else. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I think we should get into it. And uh, I, I this is like one of the original horror movies that kind of started an entire genre based on probably the most prolific uh, writer of horror fiction ever. So to start us off this week is David B. Jacobs. 16-year-old Carrie White has had an odd existence. Her hyper-religious, abusive mother, Margaret, has commanded that she fears sex and boys, and she is mocked and bullied at school by a class with little empathy. When Carrie has her first period in the phys ed locker room, something Margaret never told her about, Carrie runs to the other girls crying for help, and they laugh and throw tampons at her. Luckily, the coach is on Carrie's side and explains to her what's going on and punishes the other girls, giving them detention and threatening to deny them their senior prom. One of these girls, Sue, seems to regret her actions and decides to help Carrie, convincing her boyfriend Tommy to take Carrie to the prom instead. Though Carrie resists, she ultimately accepts the invitation, much to the chagrin of her mother. After the blood come the boys, she says, and demands that Carrie stay home, even deeming her a witch. But the shy teenage girl has taken enough shit in her life, and with a chance for a good night finally in front of her, she rebels against her mother's wishes and goes to the prom anyway. The long white dress and her hair made up all nice, she goes with Tommy, and even he seems to be enjoying himself. What's more, they even get voted king and queen of the prom. As Carrie ascends the stage and the audience cheers as she is handed a bouquet of flowers, she gleams with happiness, finally having the acceptance she's always wanted. Roll credit. Oh, wait, sorry, this is a horror movie. Uh, Chris Hargensen is another girl at the school who hates Carrie more than anything. 
With the help of her boyfriend Billy and his squad, she's rigged the voting for king and queen. You didn't think they actually elected Carrie White, did you? As Carrie gleams in happiness, Chris pulls the rope and a bucket of pig's blood topples all over Carrie, mocking her period that set all this in motion. The crowd laughs and laughs and a change comes over Carrie. From happiness, to shame, to guilt, to rage. And then, did I mention she has powers? Yeah, with her puberty, Carrie has developed telekinesis, and now everyone's gonna know it. As the crowd laughs, Carrie releases her full rage upon the crowd, setting the gymnasium on fire and burning everyone inside. She flips Chris's car, murdering her and Billy. When Carrie returns home, still drenched in blood, Margaret takes the child in her arms and stabs Carrie, who she's deemed a witch and spawn of Satan. Carrie lashes back and crucifies her mother, literally. After that, all that's left is for the house to be swallowed up by the earth, seemingly dragging Carrie White into the depths of hell. This is Stephen King's Carrie, directed by Brian De Palma off a screenplay by Lawrence D. Cohen, starring Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie. Oh, Brian De Palma. <laughs> I guess my first question, this movie has just one of the most famous openings of any film ever, mostly because there is an insane amount of nudity as the camera travels in the women's locker room. I'm curious. Let's start there. What do you guys think is like the purpose of this much nudity in this film in particular? Well, I think it it takes place in a locker room. So, I mean, they're all supposed to be naked. And a lot of it is about like, it kind of, it's like a bait and switch. It starts off with, as like almost like feminist with like, all these like glorification of like freedom and stuff from losing all your uh, clothing and whatnot, and just walking around being comfortable in your skin. Then juxtapose that with a woman who is terrified of her own sexuality and like womanhood because she's unaware of it. And then later she was kind of like uh, conditioned to take on these fundamentalist uh, patriarchal ideas. I agree with all of that, but I don't want to ignore the male gazy aspects of it. Uh, I mean, you know, the way you place your camera is saying something. And yes, it is absolutely realistic for people to be naked in a locker room. Although I think maybe some of them would be mid changing. I don't, I never really had a gym locker room in that way. Regardless, it it's definitely emphasizing the nudity and it's definitely played up for these and sensual for the sensualism, uh, which isn't necessarily a problem depending on how you look at it, but it is definitely there. It is definitely a male gaze. Uh, I, yeah, but I, I think that's a projection that people are putting onto it because I think the message is more that these women are very comfortable with themselves as opposed to Carrie, who is not. That is what, what I see. Yeah, because Carrie, you know, she's in the shower. Her back is to everybody else. She's kind of like on her lonesome and everyone else is literally like <laughs> running around naked and like very free with their bodies and very confident yeah. in their bodies. And they're like, as a woman who did go through those locker rooms, I mean, I don't know how it was back then, but definitely did not see that many women, especially young women, confident about their bodies in that way that they're just like freely running around. But I agree with you, Rob. I, I guess I question David, why, what about it did you think was sensual? Uh, lots of nude bodies, steaminess. Um, I'm trying to recall the precise shot, but it is the focus is on the bodies, not on the faces, not on the actors. Uh, you don't remember any of the specific actors from that opening shot. So you're not setting up their characters or anything mm. like that. 
Yeah, I definitely agree that it is based, uh, focused on their bodies, but I think it's also the freedom of their bodies as such. But I think that that can also be sexual without this idea of the male gaze, although that's kind of like a cultural, culturally ingrained at the moment. So I understand why it would come up. But I also think that no matter what, if you show any attractive naked bodies, that is going to come up. So I- Well, but what I'm hearing, because also you are talking about how it's showing that all the women are confident. And Devin is saying, if I'm understanding correctly, that's not necessarily realistic. Not all the girls in there would be confident. Maybe some of them would be, but not all of them. And I don't think it's realistic to the characters in the movie that a lot of the characters in the movie are also still trying to figure themselves out, not just Carrie. So I don't know if it does make sense for them to all be hyper confident. Hmm. Yeah. And then in that way, I guess it, it to me, it would make sense if we like juxtaposed Carrie's sense of like her just basic insecurities as a woman. And like, if we're looking at this from her point of view, mm-hmm. then she would see all the other women kind of being this, this overly content mm. flaunty idea. Mm. And I hear what you're saying too, about like, they don't focus on any one character in the group. And I think that's like, to me, that's the point is like, we see these group of women kind of mm-hmm. almost together. And Carrie is like, very clearly the outsider here. Yeah, I I agree 100%. I think that's kind of like why this scene is so great and why it needs so much nudity is it really places Carrie as an outsider to the group and directly points out this idea that this is a movie about the body issues and body shaming and like feminist core values Mm -hmm. and why our character is so insecure about them in a world that she believes everyone else is not insecure about. So I, I don't necessarily think that the realism aspect is a fair criticism because I don't think the scene needs to be. Because I agree with Devin, I think it's more of Carrie's view. And I think she's the central character. I like that interpretation because even later in the movie, there during the, the prom scene specifically, there's a lot of moments where things are seem to be more from Carrie's view than a representation of what's actually happening. Like we even see the coach is laughing at mm-hmm. her. It's like, well, that that's not really happening. That's just Carrie's perspective from what she has been built up to believe and from the trauma of that moment. Yeah, I totally agree. We like constantly yeah. we're going back and forth on whose point of view is this. But I don't mm-hmm. think that Carrie actually feels like an outsider in that scene until the blood comes. I think it looks like she's oh, no. she is separated because she is in a shower, but she at first appears just going about her day and is just as sensualized as all the others. Yeah, but why do you think she goes to shower alone when all the other women shower together? To me, it has the sense of like she she is still very much like an innocent, joyful girl in mm-hmm. that beginning moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we later see what her life actually is when she comes home. And obviously, she suffers from a lot of abuse and doesn't necessarily seem like a very happy girl. But in the first moments that where I guess these aren't the first moments because we have this the volleyball scene right before. But um, these these moments with Carrie when she's alone, she is kind of like in this blissful escape as she showers by herself. This is probably the only time that we ever see her truly like, quote unquote, by herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I kind of see see that as the um, I forgot what your question was now. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I, I was saying, why, why do you think uh, she showers alone rather than with the other women? And I think I was just trying to agree with you that I think we're constantly told that Carrie is an outsider. She doesn't belong anywhere because she's so insecure. And I think from the 
beginning of the movie to the very end that is kind of a through line. Yeah. And to be clear, I don't like I don't have a problem with the opening scene. I'm just admitting that there is a male gaze to it. Yeah. And I I totally appreciate that because I think that's something that we definitely have to bring into to the read of this film because it is made by a male filmmaker, the director, Brian De Palma. And then the original story is Stephen King, who is male. And the screenplay was adapted by a male as well. And yes, exactly. But it is so much a young woman's point of view. I think I didn't look up the story to confirm it, but I think that Stephen King originally started Carrie and then threw it in the trash. And I think that his wife fished it out, read it, and then gave it back to him and said, keep writing. Yeah. And this was the first book of his that um, Mm -hmm. really made it. He wrote it like kind of like right after college or I I don't know when he wrote that original piece, but this was the first one that was really published um, and then also the first one to be made into a film. But I think it's really interesting that he wrote it, I think, in 1973. And around this time, the movie's made in 1976. Obviously, there's the woman's lip movement that became so large. So like we're right in this time of like this really great feminist wave while all this is going on that is very much fuck you to the patriarchy. So I'm curious before I, I monologue on my own thoughts here, um, how you guys think that the women's lib movement directly affected this film and how you see it. Do you see this as a feminist movie? I uh, Oh, it's definitely a feminist movie. Uh, even by King's own admission, it, it's attempting to be a feminist film. But I, I think a lot of the exposition of like exposed bodies is part of the feminist movie because like, here's our body. We're unafraid to display it. But I also think this is during an earlier wave of feminism that is very different today, where it really is a battle of the sexes. And it's a male versus female world. And I think this movie is about the fear of female power in a lot of ways. So we have this woman who is kind of like secluded and closed down, who actually is has like supernatural powers, you know, which reoccurs in like Firestarter, which is pretty similar. Yeah, I, I love that. And King himself actually said that Carrie is largely about, I'm quoting here, largely about how women find their own channels of power and what men fear about women and women's sexuality directly. So I think I think you're very spot on there, Rob. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And right in the beginning of the first scene, we're, we're shown that so much of the pressure on her is based on her sexuality. And uh, like kind of that coming of age moment for women is their menstrual cycle when they first have it. That's a lot of the time when you're told you become a woman. So I think it's important that the film starts with something like that. We know that she's bullied at school and now we know that she has this problem with her own womanhood and then the religious angle comes in. So it's kind of like three tiered. Yeah. And the, and the point of menstruation is a really fascinating way to open up the story. Um, I think the book, I can't, I read it when I was like 13, so I don't fully remember, but I think it starts in the shower scene when she gets her period as well. And her mother says, you know, the religious point of view too, where she, when a woman gets her period, she is a woman because in that sense, she is like now able to have children. And in order to have children, you have sex. So I think it's it's very much the like point in most women's lives where they start to like, yeah, fully become sexual and develop. Not 100% realistic <laughs> that Carrie is this old, I mean, it does happen, but she like is already developed is very clear in that first scene but that's neither here nor there i just always found it odd yeah well sissy spacek is way too old to yeah. be playing a high school student in this movie so is everyone else none of them <laughs> they, they all look old enough to be the coach it's so funny like when the yeah when the coach is like chastising them they all just look the same <laughs> age 
<laughs> uh, the one who play, the one who plays Sue looks like she could be younger. I'm not sure if she actually is, but she she looks younger than the rest. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and Sissy Spacek has one of those faces that like she kind of looks the same age no matter what age she is. Yeah. <laughs> but she doesn't look like a high school student. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but going back to the menstruation from the religious point of view, this is ultimately the sin that is given on to women, right? We get kind of a history about it from Mrs. White when she talks mm-hmm. about it. I, and I should have probably researched this a bit more slash I really just need to read the fucking Bible. <laughs> But from my memory, and correct me if I'm wrong here, this is the punishment that is given to Eve after she basically yeah. is sexual. Okay. Then she mm-hmm. she gets the curse. Uh, not of- after she's sexual. Well, not after – well, metaphorically well, the, after she's sexual, but not metaphor- metaphorically. But literally it's <laughs> – <laughs> so in the Bible, it's a snake shows Eve the forbidden fruit and she eats it and then she shows it to Adam. And all three of them are punished for this. Eve's punishment is that things like childbirth will be painful. I think it has some stuff about how all the pain of womanhood is. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of that. And then and then man has to like sow, sow seeds and work and bring yeah. us back. And then Christianity retconned that, that the snake was the devil. But in the original, that was not the case. It was, it was a snake. Yeah. Well, anyway, the, the forbidden fruit is the knowledge of good and evil. That's what's given them. That's why they notice they're naked mm-hmm. afterwards and they put on a fig leaf and God's like, why'd you do that? And he's like, because I'm naked. He goes, how do you know what naked is? And then he gets suspicious. That's really interesting. The knowledge of good and evil, because I think that's very much what this movie mm-hmm. talks about a lot uh-huh. is Carrie essentially develops <laughs> that knowledge when she does get mm-hmm. her first period. Exactly. That's why her mother uh, starts talking about original sin. It's because when you become a woman, now your your innocence is gone. It's as if you are now you must put on the fig leaf. Now you have to have knowledge and responsibility of your actions. And then she starts calling her a witch, which I think is really interesting because uh, menstrual cycles and witchcraft are kind of pervasive through almost all cultures. Like if we call back to Midsummer, for instance. Um, she's mixing her menstrual blood in the pie to as mm. a love spell. It's also o- almost all ancient witchcraft. Uh, God, I should know the names of the ancient Greek witches, but for them, when they would draw down the moon, which is a reference to moon cycles. So these ideas uh, predate Christianity in a lot of ways. They would have to actually give a child or an eye for their powers. Any- anyway, the idea that uh, menstrual cycles or moon cycles are directly related to magic is a very, very old one. And uh, I think that's cool that that goes on in the movie. And it kind of points to this fear of female responsibility in some regard. And I wonder what you guys think about that. Because do you think that they're just afraid to give women voice? Do you think that part of it has to do with their ability to bring people into the world and affect change on them? Do we think who's afraid to give women voice? Uh, Society. Oh. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I, I, if we are to look at it, like we were talking about in, in the time that this movie was made, like what was going on in the world in terms of the women's lib movement. Yeah. I mean, it was always the idea that back then they were too afraid to give women a voice because of the power that they would eventually have. And I think what this movie is specifically saying is that women do have this power. They just have never really, really harnessed it. Um, or had the ability to harness it. And if we go back to what Stephen King originally said, which was, you know, this is the fear that men have of what will happen when women get power. Like that's, this is literally it. I'm not going to say that like all women are going to burn down their proms, but you know, we could. 
What's interesting is that, like, we're talking about the, the patriarchy and men versus women with this movie, but there are very few male characters in the movie. Even the, the most prominent ones, Billy and Tommy, are largely just acting out the, the whims of their girlfriends. Yes, I'm so glad that you mentioned this. There's the the scene with Travolta, actually. I love the acting here, and I I don't know how much to credit to, to him or De Palma, but there's specifically a moment, John Travolta, who plays Billy, who is uh, Chris's boyfriend, they're, they're mm-hmm. in the car. Chris is being very dominant in the scene. She clearly has some kind of like controlling power here. Billy's friends pull up in a car next to them. They call him a pussy for not wanting to go out with them, which I think is a very interesting term to use. <laughs> um, and I think he, he he immediately does feel emasculated. And there's this moment where Chris acts in a way that is, again, domineering. And you see John Travolta or Billy take this moment, really think about what is happening. And then he chooses to slap her and say, don't you dare call me a stupid shit. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just it's like this fascinating moment where you see him realize he's being emasculated mm. and see him getting pressured by the um what I want to say is the patriarchy, the like the pressure to be male, essentially. Like I think this is a feminist movie in the way that it also comments on how like men don't have to be men as well. They can be a little more emotional and a yeah. little more sexual. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's also kind of neat how since there's a lack of male characters, that the focus is on how other women can pressure uh, women into these kind of strictly defined gender roles or whatever, or like just kind of meekness. Because I, I think it's a little more complex than them just trying to push Carrie into a role because she's kind of pressed down by both ends of the spectrum. Like Chris, for instance, is a lot more carefree and she's sexually active and she's strong and confident even though she's a total bitch. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, she, but she hates Carrie for her meekness, whereas Carrie's mother is a fundamentalist and she hates her for her potential uh, mm. liberalness. So I, I think you know it, it kind of speaks to the time of the film that some women were kind of pulled in both directions. And as always, usually, well, maybe the middle ground's the best. Mm. No, that that's a great point that you make. It's almost like Chris sees Carrie as Margaret and Margaret sees Carrie as Chris. I don't know if it says that the middle ground's the best, though, because Carrie herself winds up not being able to live either life and is transformed into a monster by the end of the movie. Well, don't you think that's because she's she's transformed into a monster by these external forces like yeah definitely if she if she was left to her own devices and and allowed to thrive it kind of, mm. we get the idea that she would probably be okay like prom is going good and when, when tommy sees her for what he is he's like actually really into her mm-hmm. do you remember the scene where tommy is uh, writes a poem and the teacher's reading it yeah yeah right so so it's a pretty good poem and uh the teacher really likes it. And Tommy's a little embarrassed. I kept thinking that it was that he plagiarized it, but he didn't. He actually wrote it. And Carrie... Didn't, didn't he say when he's on a date with Carrie, like, oh yeah, actually, someone else wrote it? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't remember. It's an original uh. poem for the movie. It, it, it doesn't actually come from any other source. Regardless, though, I like that point that you're getting at, because that also shows like the, the teacher cannot believe that Tommy wrote this. Yeah, I think that's kind of the point, right? That uh, even t- Tommy and other characters have more layers than um, what, what they're kind of forced into, right? Exactly. And that, to me, is the most feminist part of this movie at all, is that both sexes are you know, challenged 
to be different than what their gender is perceived as. Yeah. And I I think it's critical of both extremes. Like I said, like Chris's extreme of kind of like this egoist feminism is not good either. I I love the read of her symbolizing a certain kind of feminist during this time too. The the punishment scene, uh, the punishment, there's so many. The detention scene <laughs> when um, <laughs> when the, the coach is making them do a whole bunch of exercises and Chris wants to, to walk out and she does walk out. She turns around and she goes, she can't get away with this if we all stick together, which I think says mm. so much about your read, Rob, in terms of just like how different women are seeing how we can toppling the patriarchy in this moment. Her especially viewing Carrie, but also all the other women as as weak and so not at all able to to harness any power and come out on top, which is interesting that she doesn't then like praise Carrie at the end. Mm. So do you think that's being critical of like kind of like a juvenile type of like feminist movement that doesn't really understand like the rules of the world and kind of is like all about themselves and self-involved? It's kind of like my read of Chris's character overall, that that is being actually very critical of maybe the current feminist movement. I mean, I'm not super well-versed in 70s feminist movements. I just know a little bit. I'm not either, but I do know this was definitely um, a group of feminists during that time did act this way towards other women. And I think it does say a lot about how women treat other women. How would you say the coach character uh, draws into this read? Is she a third branch of feminism then? I am so confused by her character. <laughs> I've spent so much time trying to figure this out. And she – because she acts very motherly, but in a way, like, she kind of does over-patronize Carrie. Oh, no. She totally does. Yeah. She doesn't listen at all to Carrie. I don't think she sees that she has this power. She just – she doesn't fantasize her. She just treats her like she's a little She girl. definitely means well. Mm. She definitely is trying to do what's right for Carrie, but – like, even when she's talking to Tommy and she thinks that Tommy and Sue are playing a prank on Carrie, which she's wrong about, and she says, like, oh, don't you think you'll look a little ridiculous showing up with Carrie White? And it's like, yo, that that's, mm. like, really mean to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, like, in a way, Carrie didn't ask her to uh, penalize the girls who bullied her. And by doing yeah. that, the coach kind of exacerbated the situation. Oh, I love that. So she is like using Carrie as like this way to make herself feel better or her like charity case almost to take on so that she can be this like yeah. better woman. But yeah, I mean, I, it kind of shows you that Carrie, like even her friends, uh, they're not totally, she doesn't really jive with them. She's a constant outsider. So although the coach is kind of like her best friend in yeah. this film other than i think tommy at the end and her have like an actual connection which I do is too. really interesting but I, I don't think you can blame the coach for the retaliation that follows no no i mean the coach is definitely trying to do what's right i just think that uh yeah. she is not successful in doing what's right but she's trying to she is she is one of the better people in the movie except you shouldn't hit your students <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. So David, you had a really good question for us, I think. Okay, so it seems like we are all sympathetic to Carrie, at least through this point. But when she starts killing everyone, are you still sympathetic with her? No, she turns into an absolute monster. And also, if you watch the last scene, 
not all the students are laughing. A lot of it's kind of in her head. Like a few oh, yeah, are, but a lot of them are like horrified. Like what the fuck just happened? And it's all, you know what's cool? This kind of predates school shootings. Carrie is kind of the first school shooter in a way. Like it's someone who's ostracized by society. She feels like she's an outsider and uh, she ends up killing everybody. It's a reaction. She doesn't go there fully loaded and ready to do it, but she does kill a bunch of kids at the end of the movie, which is a terrible thing. And then following this, you know, we have, uh, you guys probably never seen these movies because they're terrible, but like White Rabbit or Rampage or whatever, which are about school shooters. And obviously the real ones that happened in Columbine and whatnot. This idea of people feeling isolated and then taking it out on their peers is very timely. And what makes this weird is it has the feminist spin, which you'll know pretty much all the school shooters are men. Or, yeah. or boys. A lot of them are not men yet. Um, I disagree with comparing Carrie to a school shooter. Why? Uh, if you want a school shooter Stephen King movie, you should watch Christine. That movie's fucking great. But I don't think Carrie is a school shooter because, one, yes, yeah, she doesn't fit the profile, blah, blah, blah. She's a woman. She's bullied. A lot of the school shooters are, it, it's actually just that they're fucked up sadists and psychopaths and she's not those things. And two, I'm not convinced she's in control of her actions that, huh. I mean, she is in control, yes, but there is a power within her that she can't control fully. It feels more like when Carrie gets really angry and starts punching shit like someone else would, for her, that is just a lot more excruciatingly violent. I don't think that she would have ever done this if she weren't in this heightened emotional state. And I don't think that we hmm. can actually give her full accountability for what happened it's it's interesting because i think like i like half agree with that but then like my read of this film i believe that the thesis is about like allowing a woman to harness and control her power so then in the end if we were to agree with your point there david it kind of takes away from everything that makes this movie feminist in a way that in the end her power ends up controlling her anyway well i think that her power ends up controlling her because of how she's been conditioned that rob was just talking about the moment where she sees everyone laughing and they're not all actually laughing but she sees it that way and as is happening we're hearing mm. her mother's words they're all gonna laugh at you they're all gonna laugh at you they're all gonna laugh at you and it's like right. a, a, an easy read would be to say that oh margaret correctly predicted what would happen but for me, what actually is going on there is that Margaret preconditioned Carrie to expect this, and that is why she sees everyone laughing at her, that it's a self-fulfilling mm -hmm. prophecy. Yeah. yeah, and that's why at the end that she ends up going back to her mother. Yes, she has not been given the abilities to cope with her power and her emotion and her rage. Oh, yeah. that's a very good point in that the society that has been built is not yet yeah. capable of handling exactly. this. Yeah. She also has nowhere else to go. Of course she would go home, but it, it makes sense that she would go back to her mother to comfort her. I, I, I think what we're getting into here, I definitely want to go into a lot deeper, but I think it's a very good point of comparison when we talk about our next film. Cool. I do have one more question, which I think is actually very important for our reads of the movie. And that is the very ending of the film when the house is sucked up into the earth. What, what do you guys think is actually happening there? I, I think actually uh, Carrie aborts herself. I what? think that I think her mother is was talking about how she should have terminated the pregnancy because it was sinful and she should have never been born and whatnot. And I think it's uh -huh. kind of like her getting drawn back into the earth. 
like physically aborting herself. And I think that's what happens. Yeah, I would mostly agree that she's going returning to the earth. That makes sense to me. But what do you think is literally causing it? Do you think it is actually hell uh, coming for her that it's a devil thing? No. Oh, no. no she no. implodes. She implodes the house with her powers for sure. Yeah. I think she, she commits suicide. I agree. I used to always read it as hell comes and swallows her up, which is like, oh, yeah, the mm. now mm. It, her, her mother was right to some extent. Now hell is actually coming for her and patriarchy wins. But watching it again, I strongly felt that it was a suicide scene that Carrie it is within Carrie's abilities to do what happens. We don't see any fire or demon or anything like that. That it, it, she might even be killing herself subconsciously, I kind of read. I, I don't think she's aware that she's the one doing this, which is terrifying because then she probably thinks it's hell. And backing us up even more, after her mother's death, uh, she goes into the closet where she would always go to be punished. So she she's kind Great. of seeing what she's done and needs to be punished. And then her subconscious takes it out in this religious yeah. subtextual way it's beautiful it's a great story overall yeah i think we're ready for the next one cool okay cool all right mutts for our next film i hope you get your legal pants ready this one's a doozy kicking it off is devon shepherd if aaron wins this case she wins everything the glory and the promotion but this case isn't so close and shut her client, Father Richard Moore, is charged with negligent homicide of Emily Rose, a young girl who he believes was possessed. Ultimately, the father's exorcism failed and Emily died, malnourished and untreated. The prosecution, led by devout Christian Ethan Thomas, claims Emily was suffering from epilepsy and or psychosis and should have been treated medically, not spiritually. Erin, on the defense side, finds that in order to prove her client's innocence, she must first prove believability in the possession of Emily Rose. The film takes place mostly in the courtroom with flashbacks of Emily's life as we learn how her quote-unquote possession progresses through witness testimony. Erin struggles with the case. Her client is happy to take whatever comes to him as long as he can tell Emily's story, but Erin has strict orders not to let him testify. Erin's stress worsens when she, too, becomes haunted by a dark presence. Finally, Aaron sees no chance of winning this case without putting the father on the stand. He reads a letter Emily Rose wrote to him. In the letter, Emily says the Virgin Mary spoke to her and offered her a chance to escape her possession. But Emily chose to endure her suffering with the hope to provide awareness to the spiritual realm and therefore to God. Touching, but not enough. The father is committed of murder and the judge passes an easy sentence, thank God, literally. Aaron loses the case, but inspired by Emily's words, finds spiritualism. This is The Exorcism of Emily Rose, directed by Scott Derrickson, written by Scott Derrickson and Paul Harris Boardman, starring Lori Linney, Jennifer Carpenter, and Tong Wilkinson. Whoa, fucking dope, dude. Yes, uh, second Scott Derrickson movie that we've covered since we did Sinister uh, almost a year ago. Wow. <sighs> and he's got a new movie coming out, The Black Phone. It's out. It's out. When this airs, his new movie, The Black Phone, will be out. And the sequel to his 2016 movie, Doctor Strange, will also be out, but that one's directed by Sam Raimi. <laughs> right. So I'm really interested, guys, in what you think actually happened in the dorm room scene. I'm happy that you asked this question. So in, in just to describe the dorm room scene really fast, this is the first part where we see Emily being possessed, uh, supposedly. She's in her dorm room. She's she's alone. Um, there's no one in the hall. She goes outside. The, the door has suddenly opened by itself or from something that we don't see and it's banging and she kind of just 
scares herself. She goes back to the room and it's the first time mm-hmm. that we see this kind of supernatural presence that pushes down on her while she's in her bed, mm-hmm. right? I think the immediate read of this is a pretty common one that is seen in possession films. And uh, I'm trigger warning that this is a rape scene. I think that is the the common reading here. Usually in possession movies, possessions are come about by some sort of sexual assault. Mm. I want to challenge that. Um, throughout the movie, this never comes up again, this idea of sexual assault or that it is a rape or that anything happens. Um, she does tell her mother that she met a boy at a dance. Although, is that her friend that she met or is it, it is. somebody else? Okay. But I would say that this is more of just like maybe it, just a sexual experience more so than a sexual assault. I think Emily is a young woman coming from a very closed off yeah, life. like very sheltered. Sheltered, yes. Yeah. A very sheltered life. Um, has not really experienced much of the outside world. I mean, her mom <laughs> makes mention when Laura Linney comes to the house that she's like living a very different life than Laura Linney. And there's that like countryside city folk thing going on. And when she goes to college, you know, Emily has opened up to this whole new new world. She's in a very, very new place. And I think when she experiences sex or some sort of sex for the first time, like I think there is that kind of trauma that goes with it that you experience, especially as a woman growing up, having learned that this is bad. I could also see it as just like a traumatic experience of a sexual encounter period. Sorry, I monologued. (laughs) No, no, it was all really interesting. Um, I mean, when I saw it, I I didn't even conceive of it as kind of like a sexual experience. I I thought of it, it, it kind of played like a typical uh, night terror. Mm. Um, not Maybe not night terror, uh, sleep paralysis. Yeah. And you can't move and you feel pressure on your chest. And it's also accompanied with seeing a figure. That's a very common occurrence following kind of like a living nightmare. And the theory, although it's not proven, is that you're kind of stuck in between sleep states and your REM sleep hits before you're technically fully asleep. And it usually happens when you're very, very tired and also when you're sleeping on your back. So everything that happened led me to believe that she was experiencing sleep paralysis, which is also called hagged because I think it was Ireland or somewhere. I forget. They used to believe that a witch was actually sitting on your chest and fucking oh. with you. So people used to put a knife on their chest and they said that would fix the uh, solution. So that happened. I right? love that. The the first time and actually probably the only time I had sleep paralysis was my freshman year of college and I had it constantly. Right. Yeah, I had it one time at college, and yeah, it was real bad and weird. I'm not even positive it was truly sleep paralysis. It was. It might have just been a weird nightmare. I've had it like three or four times. It's. It's. I. I learned about sleep paralysis and had never had it, and I was like, "That sounds awesome. I want to have that." And I like trained my brain, <laughs> and it took like a year, but I finally had it. And um, it turns out I wanted to know what I was really afraid of, and it turns out all my sleep paralysis demons want to possess me. Yeah, so yeah. I guess that's what I'm really afraid of: is losing control of my mind. Yeah, that's <laughs> super crazy. Well, I, I, I do, I do love this read about about the sleep paralysis. I, I didn't see that, but it, it also makes sense. And I think like what I'm getting at from both of our reads of it, and David, I'm curious yours as well, but I think neither of us are reading because they don't talk about it in the film that this is a sexual assault. And I think we are like meant to assume that, but like we didn't read it that way. David, did you read it in the other way? I, I did. I I think that the visual language of the scene is heavily, heavily sexual assault to the point where it's like, at least within the scene itself, I think there's absolutely nothing to refute that this was a sexual assault, which she is experiencing as a supernatural event. Hell, you can even say it's a supernatural sexual assault. I mean, a lot of people with sleep paralysis demons say that their mm. demons are raping them. 
that's a very common sleep mm. paralysis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, th- I think that's basically kind of my read. But I also think that it might be, uh, I-, I think we're supposed to see it as the triggering of her mental health problems or the possession, whatever. Yeah. And it's, it's never called that explicitly within the film. But I think there are moments where you can read what she goes through as the aftermath of a sexual assault. It's not one to one at all. And there are a lot of moments that don't line up with that reading in any way whatsoever. Mm. But like even when she's running around and everyone's face is churning into a, a Jacob's Ladder demon, that that totally is like, oh, yeah, she was just assaulted. So now she is afraid of everyone. She's extremely paranoid and doesn't know who anyone is or who she can trust. I'm like, yeah, that that checks out. Mm. It, it does make sense. Um I think that's one way to read it. And I think that's a, that's a way that it does make sense. But I think that's also a way that we're trained to read these types of films, especially mm. when a young girl suffers from this. And I think we do need to challenge ourselves a bit more that not every character is changed just from sexual assault, although I agree it is implied <laughs> in this movie. In order to to figure out what this also can be, you know, a large part of the film is also Laura Linney's courtroom case. Mm-hmm. And so there has to be some sort of comparison there between Emily Rose's story as well as Laura Linney's yeah. story. Yeah, and Laura Linney's story makes no sense with the sexual assault read in any way whatsoever. Go on. Right, exactly. And so it would have to tie to a bigger theme. And and for me, what I really read that is, is like this possession or this demon um, that Laura Linney ends up seeing, the father ends up seeing, as well as the doctor that was there during the exorcism ends up seeing, is kind of represented as this self-doubt that they have, this fear of fear, if you will. I have more into that, but I don't want to mm. monologue again. So please cut me off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, a lot of it probably has to do with like her womanhood. She's kind of like coming into adulthood instead of like Carrie where she has her period. In this one, she's just going to college and out on her own and all those anxieties are coming through. It's also the age that people tend to develop mental disorders that yeah. would- true lead to them seeing demons, believing they're possessed, having delusions. There was an article you shared, Devin, which it sounds like you don't fully agree with it. And I don't think I agree with it either. But in that one, they argued that the demons were a metaphor for the uh, yes, all women. And that Laura Linney's own supernatural experiences are sort of her realizing that, oh, this has affected me as well. I don't Mm -hmm. I don't know that I really agree with that read watch it it made sense when i hadn't rewatched the movie yet but after rewatching it i was like "Mm, this is really really about faith yeah 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 Yeah, i think the faith aspect is pretty hard to ignore obviously because it is a possession movie with priests and demons i thought it was really interesting learning that scott derrickson is really religious uh interesting Mm. but not that surprising having just watched the movie like if I had heard that after watching Sinister, I might have been surprised. But having hearing that right after rewatching it, I just Emily Rose. I'm just like, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This movie kind of like chalks up to just kind of like religious uh, propaganda. It kind of actually asks us to question whether or not we think uh, mental problems are real or caused by demons, which I think is yeah. probably not a very good message to spread. See the the faith aspects of the movie kind of contradict the trauma sexual assault read a lot of the time because you know in the article she's trying to argue like the priest is the one who actually understands and emily is going through and believes her but at the same time really the priest is saying oh you weren't sexually assaulted this is a demon that's possessing you and your mental illness is a possession which is historically where possession stems from is that they didn't want to treat mental illness so they just labeled women as possessed 
Wait, can I clarify something? Because like now I'm a little confused by this. So the read is that she was literally assaulted and that's why she's cracked? It's kind of confusing. It was like a week ago that I read it. That doesn't make any <laughs> sense to me at all. They do say that she thinks the demon takes her in the night in the hospital. They, yeah. they yeah. say that that's what she said. That is also yeah. a thing in the movie that they say the demon takes her in the hospital, not in the dorm room. Then the dorm room, she fought it off. Hmm. Yeah. So then in that sense, maybe it isn't the sexual assault that does make her crack if it is yes. sexual mm. assault. Unless you mm. want to say that the demon is actually her trauma and not the assault itself. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is, I think, the one yeah. I'm leaning towards. Yeah, I think that's a weird idea. But I still don't think it fully lines up because it's weird to take a metaphor that has historically been a way of oppressing women. I mean, we had the entire freaking crucible when women were burned at the stake for being witches. And then to take that metaphor and be like, oh, actually, you should believe women when they say that they're possessed by the devil. It's like, what? <laughs> You're you're mixing you're mixing your your messages a bit here. Well, kind of. I mean, like I don't know. Exorcism goes back super far. I mean, Jesus Jesus exercises uh, Mary. It goes back before Jesus. Yeah, even even older. But in yeah, I in, think it's even older than Hebrew. I think I think it's all religions have historically had this. I think to some extent, a lot lot of exorcism has happened historically in Buddhist religions and all kinds. Saying saying whether or not to believe women or whether or not to believe Emily Rose is an interesting point. And I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the debate in this film of of medical versus uh, spiritual. Mm-hmm. We don't get Emily's point of view until the end. She, I mean, like the whole movie up to that point is told through other people's point of view. Even in the flashback scenes, we see a little bit of the ma- manipulation and how flashbacks are changed from one witness testimony to the other. You know, we don't know the reality of what actually happened because we don't get her her own voice until the very, very end. And even up to that point, now that you brought it up, David, I do question where she gets the idea of possession. If, if it is from the father saying she's possessed or if it is, yeah, her, her own will there. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we compare it to the actual case, which happened in Germany, was it the seventies? I think, it was, I thought, it, I think it was seventies. The, the girl herself thought she was possessed. And, um, another big differentiation uh, other than the real case being way more disgusting was that the medication didn't exactly work in the old case. Mm. Uh, whereas had it worked, she probably would have sought a priest. She also sought many priests before they finally found one who agreed to it. You know, in the movie, it yeah. kind of seems like the priest kind of comes in and like puts forth his agenda. Whereas in the real case, it was the girl dragging her fundamentalist parents along, trying to find someone to exercise when everyone was not agreeing to doing it because most of them don't think it's real. If you listen to the exorcism tapes from the real case with Annalie McHale, it's possible I misheard this because there's a lot going on and it's a little bit cryptic, but it sounds like she is saying as her demons, it's great when we possess women because people don't believe them. They just think they're crazy. That sounds really scary. I couldn't do that. Yeah, I didn't watch those. Um, They seem scary. I saw some photos. I don't really want to watch them. She ate spiders and she kneeled so long for praying that she broke her knees and ripped out her ligaments. Yes. Well, and and, and in the context of the film, I think bringing up a woman and and how she's seen is is really interesting because I think there is a a huge gender play in this movie. Mm. Having the defense, Laura Linney, be a woman, having the judge be a woman, the male doctors on the medical side, on the prosecution side, they're male. 
and mm. the like spiritualist doctor. So, or I forget what she's actually called, but mm. she's a woman. And I think that was such an interesting dynamic. I have, I have thoughts there, but I'm curious what you guys think Scott Derrickson was trying to do with this gender play. Mm. Well, I think he's trying to juxtapose, uh, believe women with also faith of religion, which is like, if you say you're possessed, you should probably just get medical help. I mean, that that's insane to just be like, let's just have a doctor throw water on them and read verses. It's not going to do anything. Um, you're just going to exacerbate a serious medical problem. And I, again, I, I don't like the messages this movie gives. I think they're very dangerous. And I think they play into fundamentalism, which is bad for society at large. A lot more than misframing mental health or whatever, which we've talked about in the past. I think fundamentalism is a more dangerous message to spread, particularly in this way, because they are doing what you said, Devin, comparing, listen to women, believe her, or whatever that message was like a year, was that two years ago, three years ago, when the message was believe her with the Me Too movement. Pairing that with possession, it's, it's trying to piggyback something very different with something kind of real. It's a bit weird, yeah. And um, I do actually want in the future to have like an entire episode on uh, religious, specifically Christian uh, mythology and how it's presented in horror movies. Uh, but it definitely relates to this movie and it, it borders on propaganda for sure, especially because it is telling you not to believe the scientists and not to believe the doctors. It is a fictional pill that they made up for the mm. movie, so they're not like rampaging against any real medicine. Gambitrol is made up, but it is definitely saying that the medicine wouldn't have worked. It is definitely saying that. Mm. But it's wild because in the movie, she stops taking the medicine and the, the specialists are like, maybe if she kept taking it, she'd be okay. And then the, the defense's specialist says, well, actually, she should have stopped the medicine sooner. Taking it at all made exorcism go bad. That's like literally based on your own. That doesn't really make sense. It's even in the context of the movie, it's based on her own speculation, which is like, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do agree that like there is some propaganda here. I mean, the most I see it is through um, Laura Linney's character, how she yes. suddenly finds faith at the end or some sort of faith at the end, even though she was like so against it, not against it, but just like not open to it. I'm like, I don't see that character change at all, but okay. <laughs> I think opening up this conversation to something larger than religion, I really would question of like, what does the religion signify in terms of the female plight rather than the opposite way around, which I feel like it's more so what, what you've presented, um, which I do agree with. I'm just challenging a, a larger view. Yeah. I mean, it's. I, I think it's also relevant that they chose a true story, which is more of the movie is true than I expected to be. I mean, obviously, it's a different country. And a lot of the facts of the specific case are made up. But most of Emily Rose's story is relatively accurate, which is surprising. And I think that that's just to to emphasize that you should believe this yeah. anyway. What, what do you guys think about this uh, framing it as a court case? I honestly found it extremely boring. <laughs> but I know that uh, David, for instance, had told me that he found some aspects of that really interesting. Are you talking about in terms of whether it makes the movie better or not, or in terms of what it has to say? Uh, both. Like, what do you think oh. doing the movie as a courtroom case that then flashes back to this failed exorcism do for the genre or in general for the movie itself? I'll save my reviews for the end. 
but I, I think that the intention of it is that it is subverting the exorcism movie that it is saying, what if an exorcism failed, which it could happen. And then what would people say about it? And how would this be shown in court? Cause court is a place of facts and the movie wants to deal with possibilities. And the line at the end is facts don't leave room for possibilities. So a lot of what happens in the courtroom is not realistic at all because courts deal in facts. Like they, they deal in facts. <laughs> Well, well, yeah, but they also deal in reasonable doubt. And like th- this case did go to a court and there yeah. was actually a very similar ruling in real life. It was almost mm-hmm. the same ruling, but it was also given German criteria and uh, the chain of events were different. There was actually yep. both the parents were tried too, which when I was watching the movie, I was like, why aren't the parents being held responsible? And I'm like, oh, I was wondering that too. In real life, <laughs> they were. Yes. Oh, that makes sense. And I was watching a lawyer video and he's he said for the end. Most of the case was actually kind of okay, except for interviewing a witness three times. You're really not allowed to do that. And uh, the ending with the jury, that doesn't happen. That's just not a thing. You're talking about the, the legal legal video, right? Uh, Yeah. 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 I love that guy. It, it felt based on what everything he was saying that he was very generous at the end, but it seemed like he liked how the actors handled themselves, that he felt that the mood of the court was very appropriate, but a lot of the specifics did not make sense and wouldn't happen. Yeah, but also I think breaking up the interviews was just for like the flow of the movie. Like, oh, it makes more sense to reveal this letter now, <laughs> you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I, but, I, but I mean, I really want to ask you guys, uh, would you guys have acquitted this priest or the parents if they were on trial? Based on the defense? Uh, you know, no, he would have been convicted. Yeah. That was like the weakest defense. I've I, Like, that was such a bad decision. <laughs> See, the thing is like, if I were watching this trial, then I would definitely vote to convict him because Laura Linney's defense of him is like, it makes no sense at all. But I also think that she could have yeah. made a much better case that to me, the the real idea that would give the priest more ability is, although they never showed us in the movie, they mentioned that Emily Rose has been lucid at points. So you need to prove that yeah. she chose to do this exorcism that she understood what was happening, that she made these decisions in the correct frame of mind. And it is her autonomy and, and that the priest shouldn't be held accountable for decisions that Emily Rose made, that she understood the risks. And then they would also need to show that she would have died anyway. Right. The prosecution's argument should be that it's the priest's actions which specifically caused her death, that she would not have died without the exorcism. Yeah. Right. I I totally agree. Because the argument that they're making right now, to me, against the priest, why does that also not apply to the doctors in the same manner? If they're saying that taking her off the medicine then caused her to go into this state, but some people on the opposite side are saying, well, going on the medicine will make her go into this state. So then why not put the idea of the reasonable doubt that maybe the doctors are at fault? And I mean, I love what you were saying, David, about like, needing to prove that it's Emily's choice to do the exorcism because it wasn't Emily's choice to do the pills in the first place. The doctor that they interview on the stand, they ask him like, what would you have done? And he's like, I would have done this, this, and this, an electroshock treatment against her will if yep. necessary. He says that he says he would do it against her will. And I'm like, well, there you go. That is the reasonable yeah. doubt right there. The reasonable doubt should be about whose fault it is. Yeah, and I would argue that more at fault would be the parents 
for allowing the priest to do this because I think they're technically her guardians. I don't think yeah. the priest is technically her guardian. That was something I wanted them yeah. to argue about too. And there's also the archdiocese who approved the exorcism. And they <laughs> should have all gone to prison. But that's also all interesting to me because like we're talking about Emily and her autonomy and like this is the entire point of our conversations right now. But even within the movie, they never think to make the argument that it was Emily's autonomy that she chose to have an exorcism. They literally deny her of the ability to control her own fate, even on the defensive side. Mm. Well, isn't the prosecution saying that like she didn't exactly choose this? She wasn't in the right state of mind to choose this? Wasn't that part of their argument? Yeah, <laughs> because they they need to argue that. And a defense needs to argue that, no, she was lucid in between and they need to prove that. We, we really should have seen a scene of her being lucid in between. Like, it's unfortunate to me that we never saw that. I, I think that would have been important. We see one one moment, I think, and it's when the when the father comes to the stand and there's a flashback of her in her bedroom after the mm. exorcism. Mm. That's all I recall. But there there is one one small moment. But again, these flashbacks are recreations through other points of view, you know, like they're never officially her point of view until we go to the spiritual realm. Maybe that can be considered her point of view because we are at that point, the father is reading the letter out loud in Emily's own words. Yeah, but I, I think uh, spreading this kind of misconception through films like this, which are like framed as true stories, even though they change a lot of the details, change the time period it happens in, move it across the world and do it differently, that as if these like religious um, explanations could be real is kind of dangerous because in other countries, like my wife's country, Bhutan, there are practices called Rimdro, which are kind of uh, pseudo-medical practices where they attempt to do rituals to exercise people and cure diseases. And one of the more insane ones was they used to try to like suck the disease out of open wounds. So they'd cut you and try mm -hmm. to suck it out of you with their mouth, which yeah. would probably lead to the spreading of the disease if you had it or the infection of a new disease etc. Not a, let alone like leeches and all that shit. So much of that is just very bad for you medically. So there's a certain point where like we should step in. There's a lot to be said when someone is not in their right mind to kind of like use medical guardianship to take care of them in cases such as this. So I know one of the things that we were talking about in Carrie was largely about um, the women's lib movement and the patriarchy during that time. And obviously <laughs> the exorcism of Emily Rose is a more modern lens, but I think it does show a, a woman coming up in a different type of, of patriarchy for sure. Emily specifically in, in many ways, um, one of the quotes that I thought was really interesting, um, they asked, you know, why wasn't she eating? And they said, oh, they don't let her eat. Who's they? The forces that control her. And I was like, oh, that's a, you know, maybe that <laughs> hints to disordered eating and all the problems around, you know, women and their viewpoint in the patriarchal world, et cetera, et cetera. But I think in a way, Laura Linney's character also shows what a strong woman stereotype was at that time, mm. especially showing, you know, they make it very clear she's coming up in a man's world. All of her partners are men. She very strongly fights for her her place in, in her workplace. Yeah. She, <laughs> Laura Linney does this amazing thing where she interrupts everybody. It's like the best character choice I've ever seen. She doesn't let the prosecutor finish his sentence. And then throughout the film, you'll see that the female judge starts doing it too. And like all these women start to pick up these kind of like 
rebellious acts against the male <laughs> characters. It's fascinating. But yeah, I'm I'm curious now at a point of comparison, just like how you guys see the modern feminist patriarchal sense displayed here. Well, it's modern for Laura Linney, but with uh, Emily Rose, I would actually say it's of the same time as Carrie that Annalise McKell, who again, Emily Rose is actually quite strongly based on, died the same year that Carrie came out, the movie. So I think that oh. we can definitely place those in cultural conversation. But Laura Linney's character is definitely a modern updating of that. Uh, as far as like the women's live movie, I, I movement, I kind of think it's piggybacking off a real movement and then saying some really ridiculous shit. It also makes all the women look terrible if you view it from like a logical standpoint, because they're all making these very baffling bad decisions like agreeing with the priest that he should argue with medicine. Unlike like The Exorcist, the original, where medical science has failed her and this is the last alternative, this one is pitting the uh, the religious body against the scientific body directly. And uh, the woman dies. And now they're trying to kind of backtrack and be mm. like, well, it's not exactly our fault. We did all we could. You know, and it's like, well, you know, maybe if you let the scientists, the doctors do something, she wouldn't have died. That's my two thoughts. I think if it is feminist, it's a bad kind of feminist. Well, I think to me, the father, much like Billy and Tommy represent a, a type of man in a patriarchal society, he is a man of the church. And the archdiocese, that right? Yeah. He, he is a presence in this film. And so in a way, they are showing that the father is kind of a part of this, this society that is controlled by a single person, you know, like he is oppressed in a way. He's not allowed to to speak his mind. He's not allowed to do what he wants in this court case until Laura Linney lets him. Yes, very much so. Um and he is also somewhat controlling of Father Moore in that he like he he, he doesn't want Father Moore to get convicted, but he has all these stipulations. He's like, don't you dare incriminate me. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm gonna steer us away from this conversation a little bit, now that um we talked a lot about in Carrie how Carrie may or may not become a monster in the end due to her power. At the end of Emily Rose, Emily does kind of like state that this is a power that she has, that in the end she chooses it because it'll cast some sort of believability in the spiritual realm. Does this to you make her a monster? Do you see her as a monster at the end or at any point throughout the film actually? Well, if Emily Rose is a monster, yeah. Um, I mean, the the demons that are possessing her are clearly monsters, but she herself, they they frame her as a saint in the context of the movie. It's a little weird. It it, it kind of reminds me of Saint Maud with the idea of suffering for sainthood and good damage. And there's a purpose for your suffering, which I always find really weird. They they make this point in Carrie as well, but I think they're actually a lot more critical of it that the, the crucifix that Margaret White has in, in the closet is a terrifying crucifix it is a really creepy jesus thing and then of course her death is also made to mirror jesus which is weird because margaret is explicitly mm -hmm. a villain in the movie and then when she's crucified it, it looks like she's enjoying being crucified as well you brought up the point of sainthood in the terms of emily rose and and for carrie i mean something that that I really love about the movie is when she's first starting to, to study about the telekinesis power that she has, she looks at miracles. That's the very first thing she looks up. She sees this as a miracle herself, which mm -hmm. kind of to me says that she thinks it's a little saintly. But then, of course, we we do see her questionably becoming a monster at the end. 
Well, there's this idea of stigmata in in the church. Apparently, uh, what is it called? Um, spontaneous self harm that erupts on your body can be seen as like a saintly embrace. So, suffering and Christianity are like deeply, intimately entwined. The flesh doesn't mean anything. You you are bound to suffer in this realm, and then you receive your reward after the fact. So, most saints must suffer dearly before they're uh, uh, deified. So like St. Mary, for instance, or Jesus, or anyone who faces stigmata. So there's kind of this like trial period in the beginning of possessions where you're wondering if you're encountering stigmata or demonic possession, where you got to make a choice. Like, wait, wait, is this really good or is it really bad? In either case, it hurts really bad, Um, (laughs) which is bizarro land. I like that because when she's at the prom and they're casting their vote for prom queen and king, Tommy literally goes to hell with self no to the devil with self modesty. Right? Is that the exact quote? Yeah, to the devil with modesty. And then (laughs) Carrie goes to the devil, and I think that goes exactly into what you were saying, Rob, that she makes that Mm -hmm. choice to choose to become a monster rather than a saint. Yeah, but do you think she really like? She's not necessarily making a choice to become a monster. She's just making a choice to become a person rather than a devoted uh, devotee of the religious faith, like her mother, who is kind of denying her humanity. Yeah, I think she's more so just rejecting faith as a whole. That's a fair point, because when her mother does say, uh, you have the tower of Satan, uh, she goes, it's not Satan, mama, it's me. Um, so in that direct thing, she does say, you know, I'm em- embracing this power of that I have as a human, as a woman, as a Mm-hmm. As a being, not a, a saint or a demon. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's a, when Margaret says, uh, your, your dirty pillows are showing, and, and Carrie is like, they're cold yeah. breasts, mama. <laughs> there's a lot of great scenes. Um, in that same scene, she says, we'll burn it, you'll burn your dress together, which is just fucking nuts. Carrie just spent <laughs> like a week's fucking sewing this thing, and her mom wants to throw it in the fire. Like, that's nice. She also throws coffee or something in her face in one scene, which is just so fucked up. Oh my God. But yeah, I mean, it. It literally takes the opposite stance of Emily Rose, which is that maybe this fundamentalism is not good or or it's not good. Mm. And then Emily Rose is like, whoa, whoa, hold the phone. Maybe there's something to this hocus pocus spooky (laughs) shit, you know? I was like, all right, man. I agree with that. I think in in that sense, I agree. But I think in sense of like the the woman's plight, I think they're a pretty good comp and say that they're pretty similar in the sense that Carrie harnesses this this female power at the end and finds her power, finds her voice. I think Emily Rose does the same. She's given this otherworldly supernatural gift and finds a way to make good with it and to harness her power. Do you think Emily Rose makes good with it? Yeah, she finds a way to make her suffering worthwhile. Carrie doesn't do it, but like she she gives reason to her suffering. Um, you said that Carrie finds her voice at the end of the movie. I completely disagree. I don't think she finds her voice at all. I think she lashes out in rage and then she regrets it and kills herself even if subconsciously. I, I think that she fails to find herself. Yeah, but when she goes to prom, she starts to find herself. It's just that it ends in tragedy, right? Yes, but then it's a lie. Well, no, it's not a lie that she found herself. She just got blood thrown on her and she flips out. Except it is a lie because because she's there with Tommy because Sue asked him to be there. And she becomes prom queen because Chris rigged the votes. 
all of it's a lie. Well, she's living a fantasy. Yeah, but she 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 does all she she gets to put on her makeup and feel pretty and feel like a woman. And she like even though I I really doubt that Carrie doesn't believe that there's some sort of falsity here. I think she's very much aware of it. But she takes advantage of the situation and like uses it to to be herself, to be a normal quote unquote normal girl for one night, mm. which I think is brilliant. And the way that De Palma does it is for that. <laughs> Those like 10 to 15 minutes that the movie changes. It's, it turns into like a fucking romance film. I mean, mm-hmm. right? And also like she stands up to her mother, right? So I think that's more directly yeah. her finding her voice when she says the breast mama, you know, and I'm going no matter what. She stands up to her. She holds her own. And foreseeably, had she known of the plot of the pig blood, she could have completely averted any of the tragedy with her Matilda powers. She could have just like fucking zip zapped. Everything would have been fine. Which I think says something even stronger about like the the state of the world at the time and and somewhat now in in the terms of the patriarchy is like no matter how much this woman is going to find her voice, society is going to find a way to shut her down and to make her feel guilty about Mm. it or to make her start to regret her decision. And maybe in the sense of Emily Rose, like maybe it's a little bit in the same way. Like the father gets committed at the end. He's at fault and people see that. If if we were to read a newspaper clipping that says the father was committed of negligent murder, we don't see woman was possessed and doctors committed. We see woman was falsely diagnosed and the father thought she was possessed and in a way she loses. Mm. Yeah, but I still see a lot of these uh, things in Emily Rose's kind of like superficial uh, feminist. Like, yeah, you can give Laura Linney's character the ability to like talk over men. But she's still hurting womanhood at large by continuing these fundamentalist religious ideological views. I mean, maybe it's destructive feminist, but it seems like they're portraying this very male-centric point of view onto society. And then they're like, oh, but women can chime in from time to time and talk over men. (laughs) So it just kind of feels like superficial sprinkling. I I don't (laughs) think it's real feminism. I feel like it's almost like corporate rebranding. Like the girl in front of the Wall Street bull. You know, it's not real. It's nonsense. I like that. So I do think that uh, Emily finds meaning in her death um, and that in suffering, she will become a saint. And I mean, we can say like, oh, that's not who to read a newspaper. But again, there there is a real story this is based on and people mm-hmm. still visit the grave all the time. It, it has moved people and inspired this movie. Like her death has inspired people. I disagree with putting meaning in that terrible death because I think it's really dangerous to glorify death and self-harm that way. Carrie, I think, also finds a meaning in her death, but the meaning is I have become a monster and must be punished. So they both find something, but they find opposite things. That Emily comes to see herself as a saint and Carrie comes to see herself as a spawn of Satan. Yeah, yeah. That's why I think uh, Carrie aborts herself and then Emily Rose rises to sainthood. And that's why that's also why I think she's so much like a school shooter in that she does this terrible thing and then immediately kills herself. So she doesn't have to face the consequences. It's very similar in that regard. Um, I also want to briefly just mention that a lot of the themes in Emily Rose are also mirrored in films like St. Maude, which we also covered, and Breaking the Waves by the magnificent Lars von Trier. So now it's time for the ending of the podcast, which is my favorite section, the bone review section. We'll review each film on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. Starting us off with Carrie this week is David B. Jacobs. Ah, shit. I love this movie. Uh (laughs) 
it's it's been maybe 10 years since I've seen it rewatching. I think I like it even more than the last time. It's so simple yet so complex and it, it's so masterfully made. Piper Laurie was Rob of an Oscar. Uh, Sissy Spacek is also great. And just the entire prom sequence from when they get uh, when, when she gets voted prom queen all the way through the end of the movie. I stopped taking notes. I was completely mesmerized. There's almost no dialogue through that sequence after from when they're going up to the stage until through the massacre. There's almost no dialogue in that whole part. And it's like, it, it, it's really surrealist. I, I forgot how experimental the movie was. It's so beautifully shot. I love the shot when it's her and Tommy are dancing and talking and the camera is just spinning around them and it's getting faster and faster and faster because it's like, it shows that they're falling in love, but it's also happening so quickly that it's anxiety inducing. It makes you feel like this is dangerous to fall for this fantasy. This is a trap. Man, I love this movie. Uh, Margaret White is one of the best villains in horror. I'm giving this three and a half bones. I take away from it only because I, I, I feel like I still don't fully understand Carrie's perspective as much as I would like to. But I'm also kind of okay with it just being a little bit more of an ensemble movie than I remember. Like, it's it's an amazing movie. It's an amazing movie. Devin? This used to be such a favorite movie of mine. Me and my high school friends would watch this so much. Fucking Dirty Pillows. I love that line so, so much. It, it is a beautiful film. Yeah, I agree with you. Piper Laurie was robbed of an Oscar. Her performance is incredible. Um, she's fucking terrifying. Every time I watch this movie, I just, like, get overwhelmed with, like, this sadness more so than a horror it's it's an extremely powerful film i don't know why this time when i watched it or as time goes on as i watch it i become less and less in love with it um which really hurts because it was such a, a a beautiful film for so long it it's really slow uh, i think it's just you know the more that we watch modern horror and modern movies and the way that we adapt these these older movies might start to lose their shine a little bit at least for me just because they are moving so slowly and my I process them differently. It's such a relatable movie as a teenager, especially as a young woman, and can't ignore everything this did for female characters in horror movies. I think it is a a, a beautiful, beautiful path to really showing some some feminist horror. On a normal read, I would give it three and a half bones. Today, two and a half, three. I don't I've I'm just a little dis disillusioned a little bit. I know. Rob, what about you? Whoa. Oh. oh so sad. Okay. All right. Uh, that, that's too bad. Uh, you kind of lost your flavor for you. Um, sometimes when I watch movies too many times, I, I remember them more fondly than on a rewatch. It could depend on my mood. Uh, it's also, it doesn't seem like a film that I would want to rewatch again, like immediately, at least not for the same flair. It's more like to watch as a, from a technical aspect, which uh, we didn't mention. It is a gorgeous movie. It's shot really well. It's very interesting and it has a lot of like stylized uh, kind of like anomalies. They do some really weird like screen sharing stuff, some spinny things, uh, some cutting up of the frame that is of its time that you almost never see anymore. But I think it works pretty well given the movie. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it a lot. It has a really strange soundtrack, which is cool, um, which is almost all hits except for maybe like one or two parts. Uh, yeah, I, I'm going to give it three bones. I think it's really fucking good. Uh, so, uh, uh, what do you guys think of Emily Rose? Uh, David, let's go with you again. Okay. Um, this one I didn't like 
as much as my previous watch. Um, I remembered it being even better. What pulls it back for me is, I mean, obviously I'm not Christian and uh, the, the, the Christian themes kind of don't rub with me. I don't know if I'd fully go into calling it propaganda. I mean, it is because of it's saying that you should believe this stuff over medicine, which is bad. But I mean, I, I'm not against people being allowed to have faith. I think that there is a place for religion. And we'll get into more into that when we do our religious propaganda episode. But I, I think that this one definitely pushes that line a little bit far. And also just you mentioned Legal Eagle. I love Legal Eagle and I watch his videos all the time and it's like totally ruined court movies for me. <laughs> Every time I just watch it, I'm like, that wouldn't happen, that wouldn't happen, that wouldn't happen. And it takes me out of it so much. <laughs> it's still a really good movie. It's not quite as scary as I remember it, but it has some decent scares. It actually is my favorite exorcism movie still. I don't really like a lot of exorcism movies. I'm going to give it two and a half bones. Let's go on to Rob for this one because I know you have a hot take. Oh, we're mixing it up. Uh, oh, yeah. This movie's uh, absolute dog shit. It's boring as fuck. I kept falling asleep and kept having to rewind. Uh, the exorcism scenes are way too tame. If they just went with the original, it could have been really scary. Yeah, it's just like a wet blanket attempt at the original with like some really damaging societal like messaging. It's religious propaganda at its worst being it's boring. I would love to see a communist propaganda movie, a Christian propaganda movie, if it's good and riveting. But it just gives me more disdain for this fundamentalist viewpoint. Pretty much every aspect of this movie sucks, except for some of the performances. God, I want to give it half a bone, but I... I mean, it's not as bad as uh, Birdemic, so it gets one bone. Uh, Devin. Wow. Wow. Um, this movie fucking terrifies me. I like this has always been one of the scariest movies for me. I to be fair, possession movies do it for me every single time. I, I like they terrify me, but this one especially still I'm not really sure why, but I will always crack it up to Scott Derrickson's directing because he makes scary ass shit. No, I, I really like this movie. It's it's very over the top, Rob. I agree with you. The exorcism scene is fucking ridiculous, uh, a little too much. But the the tension in some of this stuff is just so good and so strong. Um, Jennifer Carpenter's performance is beautiful. I love the story of the father. Yes, it's a little propagandity, but at the end of the day, too, this is a story about a woman's right to choose in a way, or a woman's right to be autonomous. And um, that always rings true, especially now. I think it's a unique take on on the possession film. And so for me, this is a three-bone movie. Okay, uh, interesting take. I, you know, uh, I already said my point cool. on how I think it uh, <laughs> tackles those issues. <laughs> so that's it for this week, guys. Thank you so much for staying with us. And uh, until next time, they'll be they'll be laughing at you. They'll all laugh at you. They'll all laugh at you. <laughs>